Welcome to Pull Quotes. I'm Michal Stein. Lydia Abraha will be back next week. We're now in the midst of a melt from a deep, deep freeze. Last week, much of North America was buried under a thick blanket of snow, and for a few days, there was quiet. If you were brave enough to walk outside in the blizzard, you'll recall its muffling effect. You felt the snow crunch under your boot, the wind whip against whatever skin you couldn't quite cover. If only for a little while, the city was silent. I always think about the news as being fast and immediate. We think about what's happening today, what matters today, what decisions are happening today that will affect us tomorrow. But there's one corner of the newspaper where that changes. Obituaries are slow and reflective, like a nighttime walk through a snow-covered city. They give us a chance to look at the ways in which life unfolds and how events in that life can go on to affect others. Inventions, works of art, great books. But when thousands of people die every day, how do editors choose who gets an obituary? How are papers rethinking the obit section? In an interview with Krista Tippett for the podcast On Being, Myra Kalman, an author and illustrator for The New York Times, spoke about her daily morning ritual of reading obituaries. Well, I mean, let's talk about, um, you know, how you start your days. And so it's it's interesting to me. I I think you don't do this anymore, but for a while you used to read the obituaries at the beginning of the day. That's that's my religion. That I won't break. Do you still do that? Beginning of that's the first thing. Coffee and the obits. Okay, how did that start? When did that start? (laughs) (laughs) Started. uh, Started when I was born. I don't know. It started so many years ago uh, uh, because, of course, the essence of people's lives, what happens to them in several hundred words Mm. Mm. and a few pictures is really an extraordinary way to start the day to see what the range of human endeavor is from what seems to be trivial to monumental, but none of those are ever trivial, and monumental sometimes is even less interesting, but that there is a great sense of uh, hope in these obituaries because people have done amazing things. Yeah, somewhere, I'm just trying to, in the principles of uncertainty, I think you you have this place where you say maybe that you read the obituaries at the beginning of every day, maybe it is a way of trying to figure out before the day begins what is important. And I am curious about all the little things that make up a life. On January 4th, Jennifer Yang, the identity and inequality reporter for the Toronto Star, wrote a feature, Who are the Golden Girls of Prospect Cemetery and why did they decide to spend eternity together? The story begins... Most people are buried along with their spouses, their children, perhaps even the family dog. But when Pauline Chorna, Annie Hrinchak, Anna Baron, and Nellie Handiak died over the span of three decades, they did not waver in their plan. The four women are exactly where they wanted to be, buried shoulder to shoulder under a pink granite tombstone that lists their names beneath a single word, friends. Jennifer Yang is here to talk about her process, the response she got to the story, and ways that we can learn about history through these individual, seemingly ordinary lives. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. Can you walk us through the pitch for the piece a little bit? Uh, How did you come across this story? So... The germ of this story was a dinner party that I had with a girlfriend uh, a couple years ago now. 
So I live near Prospect Cemetery, and this friend of mine lives near Prospect Cemetery as well. And over dinner that night, she mentioned how she would sometimes walk her dog through the cemetery, and there was this interesting tombstone. And all it said on it was friends, and there were four women who had been buried together. And she brought this up. It was so intriguing. Everyone around the table was really fascinated by it. And we are all kind of in the journalism world or journalism adjacent, and we all agreed that this was clearly probably a really great story. Um, At the time, I was a global health reporter, though. It was totally outside the realm of my beat. Um, And it was just something that I thought I'd love to know more about this. Um, And eventually I saw the gravestone for myself, and I would just kind of think about it every once in a while. So every year around Christmas and New Year's and Hanukkah, um, our editors are always looking for stories that we call evergreen stories, which just means it's a story that we can get together and keep on the shelf that will keep well and we can run it at any time. And they really want these kinds of stories around Christmas because it's a slow news period and we need to fill the pages. And so there was a call out for these kinds of evergreen features. And, you know, I thought it was the perfect time to finally try and look into this mystery that I personally just really wanted to solve for myself. (laughs) And there's no better situation than when your job as a reporter allows you to take, you know, a deeper look at something that you're personally interested in. It was truly like an itch that I'd been wanting to scratch for a while. So I pitched it to my editors and they were pretty much sold off the bat. I was like, so there's a tombstone in my neighborhood. It says friends and there are four women buried together. And they're like, go for it. (laughs) So that was kind of the beginning of it. When it came out, what kind of feedback were you getting on the story? It was actually a remarkable amount of feedback. People really loved this story. Um, It was really well read. And now at the Star, we track how long people will stay with stories. And it's actually pretty kind of shockingly depressing. People have a pretty short attention span now. Like a lot of stories people will stick with for, say, 20 seconds, 30 seconds before they click away. But this was a story that people were really reading to the end. And um, I got just so many emails from people who were just really happy, I think, to read an uplifting story in the newspaper for a change, for one. And also just so many people who also had kind of indirect connections either to the the Central European community that these women belong to, or even a few people who contacted me who knew these women or knew their children and had never even themselves heard the full story. Um, And, you know, it even got some pickup in the U.S. There were some outlets down there that were kind of, you know, kind of rewriting or repurposing the story. I got requests for interviews from radio stations. It was really quite a huge response. And what do you think it was about this story that struck a chord with so many people? Yeah, I sort of wondered that myself. I think there's a few things. I think everyone loves a good mystery. And I think just the fact that it was about like a a really touching female friendship. Um, You know, I think it's just so unusual for, I think, a group of women, especially women from the the time in history that they sort of were alive and lived through. You know, they, they come from traditional communities and they were traditional women themselves. And they lived through a lot of adversity, but they found the greatest loves of their lives in each other. And I think that really touched people. And it was also kind of a gateway into a piece of Toronto history that I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people didn't know about. So I think all those factors together just made it sort of very interesting to people. Yeah, I I really loved the way that you weave Toronto history into their stories. Mm -hmm. 
how do you think we can continue to look at individual histories to better understand a broader history? I think there's no better way to understand a broader history than through these personal stories. Um, I think finding characters or finding sort of small scale stories to tell big stories is often the best way to get people to understand a big piece of history or something kind of general like that. Um, How do we do it better? I think, you know, I think this was a real lesson to me as a journalist that you just need to keep your eyes open as you are sort of walking about the city and living your life. And, you know, this is something that you could, uh, this tombstone is something that I could have easily just walked past for the rest of my life and not bothered to sort of really look into. But, you know, to take that extra step to just start peeling back the layers. And then I've probably, more often than not, you'll find that there's a story behind many things we walk by all the time in the city and sort of take for granted as a a possible portal into a really interesting piece of Toronto history. So I think we just need to be more on the lookout and to sort of be a little bit more, I guess, aggressive about investigating these little mysteries that sort of occur to us in our daily lives. And it really is all around us. I mean, this Mm -hmm. literally was in my backyard, basically. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I find so exciting about Toronto. Mm -hmm. And um, like my mom, my mom grew up here and her, her parents grew up here. And it's so interesting walking like down King Street with her because like my grandfather had a clothing factory and it's now the keg. And so we walk by the keg and she's like, oh yeah, that's the old factory. And it's like, who knew? Who knew? Yeah, and it's uh, it, yeah, it's an exciting thing I think about Toronto. Yeah, there's sort of, you know, every little, like old building is kind of like a closet to Narnia, you know, like so this these four women hung out at what used to be a kind of a hall or like a clubhouse um, for their Central European community. They identified as Carpatho Russians, which I think is perhaps a phrase that a lot of people are not familiar with, but it describes a group of people from the Carpathian mountain range in Central and Eastern Europe. Andy Warhol's family were Carpatho-Russians, although they called themselves Carpatho-Rusins, um, and they're from what is now Slovakia. But in Toronto, this community hung out in this building on Queen Street that is now an Aritzia clothing store. And I've been in that store a zillion times without knowing any of this interesting history, like not bothering to really think about it. Why would I? But, you know, that's just another sort of reminder that we are always sort of brushing up against these deep histories without even realizing it. Kind of on that note, it seems like this piece was super research heavy and mm-hmm. and not necessarily... Um, not obvious research. Can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges in the research for this piece? Definitely. It's funny because, you know, when I I told you my editors were asking for features that they could run over the holidays, they were kind of picturing like short little features, something that just could fill little holes in the paper. But as I kept going deeper into it, my story grew and grew and eventually it was something it was a really long piece and I think I probably went a little overboard with the research in the end but it's because everything was so fascinating the more I went down this road but it was really hard at first because um, the starting point for me was to first of all speak to the people who ran the, the cemetery that was an obvious point a but also to look up obituaries for these women which are often a goldmine for finding survivors and finding relatives But it was a bit tricky with these women because some of them were 
buried under their maiden names. Some of them also had multiple name changes over the course of their lives because they either remarried or they would just change the spelling of their surnames, which is pretty common for immigrants often. You know, you replace like a a Y with a U or a W or something like that. So my first step to try and find these obits was to enlist the help of the Toronto Star Newsroom's librarians who are sort of just wizards at finding information. Um, So we were able to dig up obituaries for a couple of these women, and for some of the others, we found their relatives' obituaries, which also listed, of course, some of their shared relatives who were still living. Um, but the trick, the tricky part was a lot of these women um, didn't have surviving children. Even a couple of there were four of them, and two of them had only one child, and both of those um, children were deceased. So there was really only two other women who I was able to find surviving children for. And so that took a bit of work. For one, it was actually super easy. I eventually found her name, looked her up in the phone book. Her number was listed. I called her and she picked up on the first try. So that was brilliant. The other one was a lot harder for a couple of reasons. His name was William Baran which was the same name as his son. So it was kind of hard to tell, you know, which William Baran was which. And then I found a number for this guy, and I called and left a message. And then no one called back. A couple days later, I called again, and the phone line was disconnected. (laughs) It no longer worked. So in the span of two days, the phone line went offline. And I was like, what happened here? And I got a little worried because I wondered if maybe he had passed away because he himself was getting on in age. I think he's in his 70s or 80s. So I ended up finding the other William Baran, his son, his address, but I couldn't, he didn't have a listed phone number. So I wasn't able to call him and he lived out in Caledon, but I did have his next door neighbor's number. So I called her and I asked her to leave a message for her next door neighbor to call me back. And I didn't really explain because it was kind of too long winded to explain. But she did. So she passed along the message. So he called me back the next day and was like, why are you looking for me? What is this about? And I explained. And then once I told him the whole story about why I wanted to talk to him, which was to talk to his dad, to talk about his mom, uh, he was like, "Okay, this sounds like something my dad would be into, but he's in Florida right now. So that solved the mystery of why his line was disconnected. He had just gone south for the winter. So he gave me his dad's Florida number. So we ended up talking that way. But this all sort of unfolded over the course of, I'd say, two and a half weeks. It took me to get in touch with him finally. But then once I did, he knew like the whole story and he was quoted extensively in the story, had a lot of those great details. But that was just one of the of the women that I was trying to find out about. And I, I, I sort of repeated this with all four of the women. And um, yeah, it was, they were sort of, their stories were accessible to varying degrees. One woman, nobody, she had no surviving kids, A, but also her grandkids who were sort of the next best thing just didn't really want to talk to me for this story. So I wasn't able to find out a ton about one of the women. Um, and then the, the fourth one, um, she had a surviving daughter-in-law who knew a little bit, but the daughter-in-law was French-Canadian. This lady spoke Ukrainian. They had never actually spoke to each other, <laughs> even though they lived together for years. So what she knew is also pretty limited. So, um, you know, I think I spent, you know, a couple months on this story ultimately. Yeah. That's, a, that's kind of, it's like such a, an interesting puzzle. It is. And then, you know, the other pieces I filled in through other ways, like I found a Carpatho-Russian 
expert, I guess you could call him. He's a researcher at U of T who's from this part of the world and also has a research interest in people from this part of the world. And he was familiar with this community and had written books and had books in his U of T library. So a lot of the info came from some of this uh, sort of resource. And I also went to the City of Toronto archives and found information in there. Um, and, you know, newspaper articles from back in the day, one of these women, her husband died in a car crash. And I was able to find old newspaper articles from the 1930-whatever when this happened. I found his death certificate. You know, all of that was sort of helping me piece in some of the, you know, the puzzle pieces that I needed to put together to get the story up. Something that you mentioned in uh, in terms of your research is obituaries. Mm-hmm. And something that kind of stood out for me reading this piece is it almost felt like an obituary, like mm-hmm. in a weird way that it was, I mean, it was obviously a beautiful homage to their life and an exploration of their life and almost an exploded view of an obituary. And I'm wondering if you think it's possible pieces like this could come to replace obituaries in the future. I feel like there was a time where obituaries were more like this, you know, when I think there were obituary sections and and feature writers who were who only wrote obits. So I, I do think like I wish we could return to that. I mean, we used to have I think obituary writers at the Star back in the day who would write long featurey obits for people. Um, and, you know, probably one of the great examples of newspapers that still have departments like that is the New York Times, like when when notable people die or even people who are not so notable but have interesting lives die. They assign these wonderful feature writers to write these beautiful pieces about them. Um, I think and, you know, when I first started out as a journalist, as an intern, one of my tasks was to check the obits for those little blurby obits that had potential for longer to become longer stories and that's not really practiced anymore in newsrooms but again it's one of those things I think this is one of those untapped sort of like resources we have now as journalists for finding great stories is the obits Um, I think that any enterprising feature writer at any newsroom could could sort of turn back to these little obit pages at the back of newspapers for story ideas like this one and you know you can spin them into features still you just have to start kind of looking people live such rich full lives and so so often these lives go by they pass by unremarked upon um but you know these women were just ordinary women living in toronto really um but you know you you look hard enough you ask enough questions and actually they represented such a rich interesting story and you know people don't really think of their own lives is interesting or remarkable or even their relatives lives is interesting or remarkable when I contacted these women's kids the ones who are still around like neither of them thought to approach like a newspaper with their parents stories or even one of the women's daughters she was just like it's not very interesting they just decided to be buried I'm like actually it's super interesting but you know her her sort of impulse was not to think of it as a story um, so I think you just kind of got to put that lens on and, and then you'll find more than you even think than you would have even expected. Why do you think that uh, that practice of combing the obits for feature stories isn't really practiced anymore? 
I think it's just a resource issue. I think that just because newsrooms have had to cut back so much, we have less time, we have less room in the newspaper, we have fewer people. I think all of that has sort of added together to contribute to this kind of falling off the table because it does take time, it takes people, it takes resources. Um, and and I think, I don't know, I think that's the best answer I could guess at because um, it's clearly, they're clearly still such a rich resource for, for stories. There's no real reason why we shouldn't be looking there anymore. I just think there's so many other demands now. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting talking to you. Thanks for having me. It was fun to be here. Last year, Amy Padnani, the obituary's digital editor at the New York Times, launched a new project called Overlooked. Overlooked is a series of obituaries for people who never got a New York Times obit when they actually died. Some of these people are surprising, like Charlotte Bronte, Sylvia Plath, and Diane Arbus, all of whom weren't given an obit. But others are lesser known, like Mary Ewing Outerbridge, who introduced tennis to America. For Black History Month, Padnani and Veronica Chambers, the New York Times archival storytelling editor, assembled obituaries for Black people throughout American history. We'll hear from Amy Padnani and Veronica Chambers in a moment. This is Amy Padnani. I'm the I'm an editor on obituaries. And this is Veronica Chambers, and I'm the editor of Past Tense, which is our archival storytelling project. Amy, can you tell us how Overlooked came to be? Sure. So I joined the obituaries desk in early 2017, and at that time, the national debate on race was at a rolling boil with Black Lives Matter, and there was a renewed discussion on gender inequality bubbling up. And at the same time, I was curious to know, as a woman of color and as a journalist, what could I do to help advance the conversation? And so this was in the back of my mind when one day I was doing some research on a day-to-day obit, and I came across a website talking about Mary Outerbridge. She was credited with introducing tennis to America in 1874. And on a hunch, I checked our archives and found out that she didn't get a New York Times obituary. I started coming across other interesting people in history who didn't get New York Times obituaries, and I kept a list. And when I had a couple of dozen names, I went to the head of the obituaries desk and I said, maybe this is the time to finally tell their stories. And so that's how Overlooked came about. Is Overlooked um, part of a larger strategy by the New York Times to address past mistakes? So initially, uh, we had just started this gender team um, that was all, I believe that was in the fall of 2017. So I had already started working on this project, and when I learned that we hired our first ever gender editor, Jessica Bennett, I reached out to her, and we decided to partner on this. Their goal is to go around the newsroom and basically change a perception on every single section to get us to think differently and sort of take away the white male voice of the New York Times. So this fit in very naturally with their mission, and um, so we partnered on the initial launch for International Women's Day in March of 2018. Right, because it it's came out on March 8th last year. Is that correct? That's right. What are some of the challenges of commissioning and writing obituaries for people who died such a long time ago? 
Yeah, it's really fascinating to have to dig through some of this research. For instance, with Mary Outerbridge, who I mentioned earlier, I thought that she had introduced tennis to America. That's what the website I came across said, and I did a ton of research. There were old New York Times articles that were crediting her. There was some debate as to whether she had started, uh, she had introduced uh, tennis first to America by, um, by putting up a tennis court in Staten Island, New York, or if this other guy, a doctor, started uh, built a tennis court on his uncle's lawn in Massachusetts, and the New York Times decided in the 1930s, no, it was definitely Marietta Ridge. So I went ahead with my piece, um, and then I contacted a tennis historian for some more information, and he said, wait a second, you're telling me Mary Outerbridge introduced tennis to America? Uh, that's what you're going with? And I said, yeah, you know, it was decided a long time ago. And he said, oh, no, 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 there are at least six people credited with introducing tennis to America. So I had to recast my story and, um, you know, and, and mention that she was a pioneer of the sport, but she may not have been the first. So there, there are a lot of facts and details that sort of get muddled with history, and we have to really be careful with those. How do you think that looking at individual histories through obituaries can help us better understand um, the broader history, that period in time? Hi, this is Veronica. Um, I think that when we were putting together, for example, the Black History Month special, what was really striking to us was how many of the people that we were writing about had either been born in slavery or were the children of slaves. And so all of a sudden you view their accomplishments in a completely different light. I mean, if you look at someone like Mary Ellen Pleasant, who's born a slave and then goes on in her own lifetime to become a gold rush millionaire in San Francisco, then it's pretty extraordinary. You have to think about all the the steps of the journey. And so, you know, I think one of the things that um, Amy often says is, did they make news in their lifetime? And then their death is, is worthy, is news as well. But I think that the what was interesting about these people is you realize it's, it's not always that they made news in their lifetime. It's also like the incredible um, mountains of resistance and the hurdles they cleared just to get to a place of humanity. And then the achievement starts to pile up on top of that. It's pretty extraordinary. So for this special Black History Month edition of Overlooked, how did you choose who to write obituaries for? That was a tough process for me. <laughs> Um, we had dozens of people to choose from, and um, all of them were so fascinating. We decided to go with some of the obvious bigger names who uh, shockingly didn't receive obituaries, like Scott Joplin, the pianist and composer who wrote The Entertainer, um, and then Moses Leewood Walker, who was one of the first, if not the first, African-American baseball player in the big leagues before Jackie Robinson. Um, we were So there was the obvious factor of the people who really should have gotten obituaries, and we were surprised they didn't. And then there were others who, um, as Veronica said, just achieved these remarkable things in their lifetime um, and had these really powerful stories. There was Margaret Garner, who killed her own daughter so she wouldn't have to grow up into, and become enslaved. Um, and it raised these really important questions for the time 
like, is slavery worse than death? Um, one thing I was going to say about the Margaret Garner, which I thought was so interesting, is that literally when we put it up on social media, and Rebecca Carroll, who's a reporter at WNYC, who's an amazing writer and reporter, um, when she and I shared this on social media, there were so many amazing, intelligent, like, well-educated people who were like, I had no idea that this was the inspiration behind Toni Morrison's Beloved. So what's interesting is that, like, some of these figures kind of move into mythology and literature, and, um, and yet we don't actually know they're based on real people. So, like, Mary Ellen Pleasant was the subject of a novel called Free Enterprise by Michelle Cliff. And so, you know, you have all these ways in which um, you have these stories are actually known to us, but we don't always know how real they are. Are there examples of people you wish you could have included but couldn't because of space or time limitations? Well, lucky for us, Overlook is continuing, um, so we're adding to it every week. I will say there are some cases where I'm, <laughs> I'm almost disappointed to learn that we did have an obituary um, because, um, you know, that's the number one criteria for Overlooked is they had to have not received an obituary in the New York Times since it began publishing in 1851. And um, otherwise, they're technically not Overlooked in a newspaper. But there are a lot of really interesting people I've come across that I've had to decline for the project because we actually did do their obituary. Are there any that stand out to you? I mean, Harriet Tubman is an obvious one. She only received 133 words in her obituary. But, you know, our format for obits has changed over time. Often obits were just a paragraph for so long. Now it's such an art form that we almost wish we could go back and flesh out these stories. There is Lucy Stone. She was an early feminist. And supposedly she was the first woman to keep her maiden name after marriage. Um, and she later started a women's group called the Lucy Stoners, which helped women apply for and retain passports in their maiden names. Um, but she had an obituary. And what's interesting is Lucy Stone was actually um, wrote about the Margaret Garner trial. Oh, that is so. She um, was one of the people who attended and witnessed and talked about how horrible it must be for her, how horrible slavery must be that a woman would be willing to kill her child rather than have her return to enslavement. Do you think there's a way that this project could inform contemporary obituary writing? In some way, I think it's helped shape our criteria day to day. Um, As I mentioned earlier, this project sort of started with the idea that we didn't have, you know, readers were... Maybe I didn't mention this. The readers were writing in to say, why don't you have more women and people of color in your obituary pages? And um, and I wondered the same. And so I was looking for ways to improve our numbers going forward. I think at the time we learned there were about one in five obits about women in our day-to-day coverage. So there were a number of things we did. Um, we set up a, a tool with some um, coders in-house to help us measure our obits month to month going forward, um, the percentage on women and men. And we've definitely increased our percentage. And I think part of that is because of Overlooked, 
we're a little bit more careful in our criteria since we know now that sometimes people were not recognizing their lifetime or important achievements. You know, that can't be the only deciding factor for whether they get an OBIT. We really have to do a lot more research, talk to more people in their field to decide whether or not they had an impact on a group of people or made a contribution to society in a way. And so I think we're a lot more diligent in that research um, before we dismiss somebody for an OBIT. And um, we also have a lot of readers who write in now and say, I know you're making this commitment to recognizing women in history through your OBIT, so I want to tell you about an important woman who just died yesterday. And that's really helpful that more people are writing us to tell us about women they hear of who are worth obituaries day to day. What do you think is the future of the obit space, given that so many publications have pulled back on supporting uh, traditionally people who were obituary writers? I to say, I think we really respect it as an art form, though. I don't see it going away. And um, we also, you know, especially when someone really famous dies, it seems to be the first thing a lot of people look for is their obituary to look back on their life. There's a sense of nostalgia to it. Um, and we, you know, we're known for also having this trove of, we call them advanced obituaries for people who have not yet died. And so far this year, several dozen from our advanced obit database have already died. So it's, it, there's an obvious need for what we do. And, and I, I guess I would add, um, this is Veronica, that I think for people who are kind of, one, you can always follow overlooked each week on Wednesday that there's a new post that you can read digitally from wherever you are. But if people haven't seen the 2016 documentary, Obit, which was directed by an amazing woman filmmaker named Vanessa Gould, it's just, I think it's a great documentary, and it just reminds us how much Obits are about inspiring our own lives. I feel like when you work on a project like that, you kind of, like this, um, you wake up the next day and you kind of go, oh my God, what am I doing? What am I doing to like make a difference and make my mark? And that's pretty inspiring. I will also say that I always find it fascinating that on day one of when the New York Times began publishing, September 18, 1851, we had an obituary in our pages. It's, you know, part of life. We recognized from day one that it was important that people wanted this. Readers, you know, felt it was important. So I can't see it going away even now, 168 years later. What do you hope that readers will get out of Overlooked? Uh, <laughs> um, well, I've heard from a lot of readers who they're really thankful for the project. A lot of them say... You know, they feel seen for the first time in a long time. I think that this is an important moment where a lot of people are fighting for their voices to be heard, and you hear it in the debates in the news through these movements, these hashtag movements. Um, and a project like this really seems to resonate with them. It's, it's, it almost feels like it's something they needed. You know, I think also... A lot of times when we wonder what's possible or if something is too hard for us to accomplish, it's really helpful to see the lineage of people who do that. I mean, I always remember um, interviewing Sarah Blakely, who created Spanx. And, you know, she created Spanx because 
She wanted to be an American inventor. And then you look at someone like Granville T. Woods, and you realize, oh, like there's this long lineage of people in the United States who are tinkers, who are inventors, who like might spend their whole lives trying to create something that will help people or something that people use. You know, there's an obit that's coming up about a woman who created, can we talk about it? Oh, yeah. I guess it could. I already wrote it. Okay. <laughs> It'll publish eventually. Yeah. Uh, her name is Betsy Blount, and she was a nurse and a wartime inventor who created an early version of the feeding tube. When she was little, her um, teacher would slap her left hand because she was writing with her left hand. And so she was very defiant, and she said, well, if I wasn't supposed to write with my left hand, I figure I'm not supposed to write with my right hand either. So she taught herself to write with her teeth and her feet. Oh, goodness. And then later on, when she, when she was a nurse after the war and all these amputees were coming in, she taught the uh, veterans to write with their feet and their teeth, much as she had done for herself. And the doctor says to her, if you really want to help these boys, you'll give them a way to feed themselves. So she said, I'll do that too. And she invented an early version of the feeding tube. So, um, yeah, it's it's true. There are all these people who really fought to create things to make our lives better. Yeah, and I think feeling at times, like in a moment where it seems like you're not always inspired by the news, I think that it's really great that there's a project like this and you can see people like trying to be faster and better and smarter or in some ways like pushing themselves to create and be more in the world and do you know it's interesting because one of the best obits i think that um we've run this year is the mary oliver and it's like her the poet and you know she has this amazing line it's like what are you going to do with your one wild and precious life and i i think that that's what overlooked really captures Amy Padnani and Veronica Chambers, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great day. And now for our favorite segment, poll quotes. This week, we've got a special guest joining us. Jordan Curry, copy editor and I on diversity reporter for the RRJ. Welcome to Poll Quotes. Hello. Thanks for having me. Jordan, what's your poll quote? So my pull quote comes from now formerly uh, film critic and um, entertainment journalist Phil Brown, who wrote an article for Now Toronto called Why I Quit Entertainment Journalism, which, as you can probably guess from the title, it's very much his swan song um, to journalism. And he essentially talks about how precarious the industry is, especially um, working as an entertainment journalist and how much work he had to do for little pay. Um, And after 10 years, just the deterioration that work was taking on his mental health and his life, um, how he finally decided to pull away from it. So the quote that I chose was, there were years when I easily wrote between 700 to 800 articles to stay afloat. I didn't take a vacation for a decade. I couldn't afford one and naively believed that all the hard work would pay off someday. Someone would notice, staff writing jobs exist. At some point, I'd get my turn. Nope. So after 10 years, I burned out, gave up, and quit. And I really chose that because um, as much 
doom and gloom, I think, as a lot of journalists who read that probably felt about this piece. I do think it takes a tremendous amount of courage to realize when something just isn't working for you and to know when to give up and walk away um, and to pursue something else. And I think Phil Brown really encapsulated that in his piece. Thanks, Jordan. Michal, what's your pull quote? So my pull quote today um, has to do with the sentencing hearing for Bruce MacArthur. So um, last week, Bruce MacArthur pleaded guilty to eight counts of first-degree murder. And Eternity Martis, an RRJ alum and now a senior editor at Daily Extra, was at the hearing. And she wrote a tweet thread that I think deals with a really important issue. Here's my pull quote. Today in court, a neighbor of Andrew Kinsman talked about a reporter shoving a mic in her face and asking her what she thought about the gory details now that Hope was gone. She had just found out about her friend. People gasped, and with good reason. This is not where journalism should be anymore. We are so consumed by getting answers out of people, especially in this case, that we don't even think about the consequences of how we do it and that there is so much grief and processing happening right now. We think as journalists that it's not our job to be empathetic, not our job to tiptoe around grief, especially unprocessed grief, that our only job is to get the story. This is embarrassing, misleading, and a greater issue when it comes to the public's perception of journos. Her thread goes on, but at the heart of what she's getting at is that when we aren't being empathetic, when we forget that there's a human on the other end of our question, processing whatever information we as journalists are throwing at them, we aren't doing our jobs very well. It is embarrassing to be so tactless as to ask someone deeply grieving about their thoughts on the gory details, even if it makes for good television. This is a pretty common critique of journalism, that journalists have been called too aggressive or not sensitive enough in the search for the perfect quote. Eternity's tweet about a more recent event highlights the fact that journalists still have a long way to go in terms of balancing the public's need to know, as opposed to a person's private right to grieve. That's it for Pull Quotes this week. Pull Quotes is produced by Lydia Abraha and by me, Michal Stein. Thanks to Jennifer Yang, Amy Padnani, and Veronica Chambers for joining us today. Thanks to Jordan Curry for contributing to Pull Quotes this week. Thank you to Angela Glover and Lindsay Hanna for technical help. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata. If you learned something on Pull Quotes today, tell a friend about it. They'll thank you. We promise. We'll see you next week on Pull Quotes. <laughs>